Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. What up, dog? I'm Cam the Provocateur. Oh boy. <laughs> it begins. Oh boy. <laughs> you guys you guys saw the title of this episode when you hit play. You know what's coming. Mm-hmm. We'll get there in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we, uh, you know, pounce on the films, plural, in question this week, we've introduced a new little section at the start of the episode. And first and foremostly, it's a call out because we've opened this new club, the Spy Hards Die Hards. And if you want to be a member of that club, prestigious club, it's very prestigious, so prestigious that Cam barely knows it exists. That's right. That's right. And you want to be the cat's meow. So you want to join this club. Oh, Cam, that pun was hysterical. (laughs) Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that works. That works. Oh, he got there, guys. He did get there. (laughs) Uh, But I can hear you all shouting at home. How do I become a spy hard diehard? I know you're chomping it at the bit to find out. And I'll tell you how. You leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening. And then send it to us if you can. So drop it to us in an email, spyhardspod at gmail.com. Our email is on all our social medias. But we'll usually get a notification as well when you've left a five-star review. You can write whatever you'd like in it. But as long as it's a five-star review, we will get it. And you will become an official member of the Spy Hards Diehards. And I have now picked a recent entrant at random to read out now who has recently joined the Spy Hards Diehards. This is from Mr. Space Odds. Let's play spies. Looking around for a podcast to fix my Bond review listening fix, I came across Spy Hards, and it was the best find to come across. Why? I actually would like to know why. To yeah, be fair. we're looking for that answer. Please, please, please tell us. Because hosts Scott and Cam talk about all spy films. Thanks to this podcast, I started to discover unearthed gems that seem to have either been co-signed to cult fandom or forgotten entirely. An interesting, well-informed, and well-presented weekly show that have become a highlight on my daily commute. Wow, that is a high praise. Thank you very much. Yep, you are officially a Spy Hard's Die Hard now, and if you want to join the likes of Space Odds, Just leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchase, anywhere where you can leave a written review. And uh, if you can as well, send us in a screenshot of the review so we can double-check that it's there. And uh, you will become an official member. And if it's very well-written or funny, or actually, to be fair, about as well-researched as we are, we'll read it out on the show. That's right. That's right. You will become famous or infamous, whichever way. Uh, and if you want to support the show in other ways, we do also have the Spy Hards Patreon. You can find out more about that in the show notes below, patreon.com slash spyhards. You can chip in a little or a lot, and there's a lot of bonus content, over 50 bonus episodes at this point now for you to tuck into if you want even more Spy Hards in your life. But, Cam, the people are drooling, they're salivating, they want to hear about this week's film, so let's get to it. Well, Cam, everyone's gone barking mad waiting to hear about it. Let's introduce this week's films. What have we got? Yeah, we are a little off the leash this week. We're not just Mm. tackling one movie, we're tackling two. We are going to complete the saga of the Cats and Dogs series 
we are going to review 2010's Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore, as well as 2020's Cats and Dogs 3, Paws Unite. Now, you may be asking yourself, why? Why are they doing these films? Mm. Why are they doing both films in one episode? Uh, That is a very good question, and I don't think I have the answer. It's mostly because we know that people probably have a limited patience for Cats and Dogs sequels. And on Mm -hmm. top of that, Cats and Dogs 3 was mostly a straight-to-video film that had a very small international release. So it counts as a theatrical movie, but we prefer to focus on theatrical movies on Spy Hards. So these are kind of getting the treatment that the two Harry Palmer TV movies did. Absolutely. And we're notorious... Mm, wink, wink. We're notorious completionists here on Spy Hard, so we do want to make sure we, uh, you know, have a fully rounded out. Uh, you know, l- we've done the length and breadth of spy movies. We want to say we know spy movies, and to do that, sometimes you have to watch Cats and Dogs three. And having seen now Cats and Dogs three, I officially know everything about spy movies. <laughs> this is it. This is the peak. You've reached it, folks. Well done. You're here with us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How, do, how does it feel? It must feel great. Welcome to the winner's circle. This is it. This, you are diehards now. Congratulations. Mm. Um, or they want to die hard. Well, well, we haven't got there yet. We haven't <laughs> yeah, quite yeah, got yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. But I, I suppose then, you know, we had an interesting time with the first Cats and Dogs film. We, have, we had Lawrence Guterman on the show, who was a director of the first one. We had a lot of fun with that. There's a lot of cool things they were doing with that film. A great cast, too. Mm. So... Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore, the second Cats and Dogs film, which already has a slight problem in its title because The Revenge of Kitty Galore implies that there was a first time we've met Kitty Galore. Aha, uh-huh, I had that underlined. What exactly is Kitty Galore getting revenge for when we've never met this character? Yes, uh, interesting choice. But let's give it a chance. Here is the rest of the synopsis. I think I just cracked it, Scott. Oh. I think actually Kitty Galore is getting revenge on humanity for her mistreatment when she lost her fur. I think that is the revenge. It took me a second because I was thinking of like Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. We hadn't seen the Fallen before, but they gave us enough backstory to explain what the revenge was. I think that's the case with Kitty Galore. And perhaps also, yeah, we made mention in the first one that it was very much a pro-dog, anti-cat film. Yeah. Uh, perhaps this is the revenge of the cats. Mm, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, we're putting way more thought into the, t- the title of this film than uh, I think the writers did. <laughs> cats and dogs. The revenge of Kitty Galore. Just like real spies, only furrier. The ongoing war between the canine and feline species is put on hold when they join forces to thwart a rogue cat spy with her own sinister plans for conquest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you like, write anything like that; it sounds great. <laughs> like that almost applies to any cats and dogs movie, really. Um, you know, plot maybe isn't. Actually, you know what? I was going to say plot isn't so much their thing, but with this movie, plot really is its thing. It's obsessed with its plot. It's interesting because I, uh, <laughs> I had a lot of, I had a lot of expectations going into this first one. And we'll get to whether that was met or not. But I, I, the first film, I think, did a pretty good job of sort of doing walking that line that Spy Kids one also walked, where having sort of adult and kid moments in the film, both sort of 
areas could enjoy it. I'm not so sure the second one delivers on that front. I think I may be a little less uh, enthusiastic about the first one in that regard. But mm-hmm. I will say this, like there was elements of the first one I appreciated much more so having watched the sequels. Well, like Jeff Goldblum going, uh, 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 just <laughs> all the way through the film is it's, it's fine with me. Sure. Yeah. And I think like the understanding of like cartoon style, Looney Tunes style mm-hmm. set pieces sure. is quite strong in the original. And I remember when we reviewed it, I talked a lot about how I saw a lot of Gremlins influence. Mm-hmm. And we actually talked to Lawrence Guterman, the director. He kind of was like, well, no, no, Gremlins wasn't something that was at the front of our minds when we were making it. But I think it was really just that Joe Dante, who made Gremlins, was really obsessed with Looney Tunes. And so sort of that crazy Looney Tunes energy was just throughout um, Cats and Dogs, and I was assigning it a little more to Gremlins. Yeah, which I think is a perfectly valid thing to do. But, you know, we are going to chart the course of both these films this week and a little bit of backstory for it. So, Cam, I'll throw it to you. Yeah, so Guterman did not come back for Cats and Dogs 2. We asked him about that in the actual interview. You can go back and listen to that. Um, So the duties for Cats and Dogs 2 fell on Brad Payton. And he's a Canadian-born director, born in Newfoundland. And... He'd started in animated shorts in the early 2000s and worked for CBC TV here in Canada doing stop motion work and moved into this movie. This was his film debut. Uh, And it makes sense. Lawrence Guterman also had a background in animation when he made the Mm -hmm. first Cats and Dogs. They obviously looked to animation for Cats and Dogs 2. Now, Brad Payton, the name may ring a slight bell to some people who go to a lot of movies or just kind of pay attention to the credits. He was picked up um, almost right after this movie by Dwayne Johnson to direct Journey to the Mysterious Island, which was uh, Dwayne Johnson stepping into a franchise where he wasn't there for the first one. Brendan Fraser was in the original Journey to the Center of the Earth. Right. And then Dwayne Johnson did the sequel and Brad Payton directed that movie. And since then, the two of them have worked together on San Andreas and Rampage. So Brad Payton has been one of The Rock's go-to guys. And of course, The Rock was always known as the Brahma Bull when he was wrestling. Animal connection there. That has to be it, right? Yeah, sure. I'm willing to go with that. (laughs) That sounds like a complete lie, but uh, I'm buying it so far. Yeah, and I found an interview with Brad Payton. There wasn't a lot of insightful press on cats and dogs 2 that may uh not shock you no (laughs) no are you telling me that the press tour was was not international well it was just a lot of actors being asked um you know what was it like being around those cats and dogs (laughs) that sort of stuff you know oh it was really great i had a lot of fun they're well-trained actors better than some actors i've worked with who are human (laughs) that sort of stuff yeah Um, okay Yeah, but one thing I found was Brad Payton talking about the movie and kind of what his vision was for it. And he said he watched the first movie and he said it felt like a cartoon to him and he wanted the sequel to feel like a comic book, which is why there's much more of a grounding in a specific city. Mm -hmm. He wanted there to be like kind of this big prison that would feel like, you know, when you go to like, say, Batman, you've got Arkham. Well, that's not a real city. It would be like when you're in Marvel Comics and... Yes, Spider-Man is is in a recognizable New York, but you've got the Baxter building where the Fantastic Four live and, you know, Charles Xavier's school, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so that was very much where he wanted to shift the franchise. Um, And he was 
also like a big spy guy. He said that when it came to kind of influences, they were looking at James Bond, they were looking at Mission Impossible, Jason Bourne, and that he really geeked out over getting Roger Moore to do an appearance in the film. Yeah, that's definitely one of my highlights. Uh, There's a lot of nods to Bond in this Mm -hmm. film, including Roger Moore. And also another big Bond name is very much involved in this film. Cam has made a quizzical look at me across the digital podcasting space. I'm actually now going to press him to see if he can figure out what the other big name is. Cam, stop scrolling through the IMDb, you absolute cheater. I don't know what you're talking about. What? Okay. I'm sure as soon as you say it, I'll be like, oh, of course. But in the, I'm look, I was up very early. I barely slept last night. I was at Killers of the Flower Moon. What was the what's the other bond connection? I, I was so excited to talk about cats and dogs, I just couldn't wait to get here. <laughs> the other bond connection, uh, and I'm sure everyone is screaming at us now, is Shirley Bassey. Did she sing the opening song? That's her. Oh my, I totally didn't pick up on that. I was too distracted by the fact it was a like cover of a Pink song. Yeah, it's uh, for those who haven't seen the film, and trust me, I understand if you haven't. Uh, it's Shirley Bassey in a uh, set against a sort of Bond-style digital intro. You know, it's animations, it's kind of Bond-style animation. Uh, and she's singing, I'm coming up so you better get this party started. Yeah. Uh, which is a weird song, but it's uh, it says sung by Shirley Bassey in the credits and everything, so... I so missed that. I think I was writing notes at that point, and I became so distracted over the course of the movie how every time they played like a famous song, mm-hmm. it was a cover. Yeah, yeah, it was every time. And I was just like making notes like, oh boy, despite the budget, they're really cheaping out on their song licensing. And uh, I didn't give Miss Bassey proper credit as I would have if I'd noticed that. And you guys, you wouldn't have seen this uh, listening at home, but Cam's face just did actually light up when I mentioned it with Shirley Bassey. He's genuinely happy yeah. that this is the case. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so, anyways, <laughs> knock list instant. <laughs> when we do our Bond song rankings, we'll include this one. Um, <laughs> so, the original film uh, was written by a writing team, John Riqua and Glenn Fakara, who have gone on to become directors. They did like Focus, for example, and they've continued writing. But um, they went to a different writing team. Those two weren't going to come back for the sequel, so they went to Ron J. Friedman and Steven Bensich, who started making shorts in 1995 and were picked up by Walt Disney and Mm -hmm. went to the animation world. They did Brother Bear and Chicken Little. And then they went and worked with DreamWorks to do Open Season and then kind of like bounced back and forth. They did some additional material for the um, Disney straight-to-video movies, Cinderella 3 and Little Mermaid, Ariel's Beginning, and then moved into this movie. And this was the last credit they had until this very year with the movie The Monkey King on Netflix. So there's been like a 13-year drought for them in terms of credited uh, writing jobs since. I mean, who knows what's going on in terms of uncredited, but yeah. It sounds like their recent career has been a catastrophe. Oh, that's beautiful, Scott. Perfect timed. Um, And yeah, the goal of the movie was, like again, to blend live action, puppetry, and digital effects. Mm -hmm. They were using, once again, the Tippett Studios, who worked on the original Cats and Dogs, so there was an attempt to have a you know, visual continuity with the first film, even if there was a bit of a shift in terms of tone. Sure. Uh, and the crew spent six months training the animals for filming. And it was an incredibly complex shoot, just like the first one. They had three units you know, shooting consistently on, for a 70-day shoot. And um, Brad Payton said it was a 
quite a headache. And I think there's maybe a reason that he didn't come back for Cats and Dogs 3. I, I, I mean, they say the hardest things to work with in Hollywood are animals and kids, right? That seems to be the, the usual story. Yeah. Uh, I, could, I could buy not coming back. Also, to be fair, there is a, like a 10-year gap between 2 and 3. Yeah. Uh, I think Ben's a bit busy now. That's right, Brad. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't care. <laughs> uh, well, it's so, <laughs> so weird. I'm really sorry to Brad Payton. I'm, so, I'm sure you're a wonderful guy and an even better director. I've never seen any of your films apart from this film. Uh, I'm just not a big Cats and Dogs 2 fan. And I'm sorry that it's showing. I'm sure you give a lot of money to charity. You didn't see San Andreas or Rampage or anything? No. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> just no. Okay. No. That's fair. <laughs> um, and so the budget for this movie was $85 million. Uh-huh. And domestically, it did 43.6, international 68.9 for a worldwide total of 112.5. So they skated by okay, but this was not the hit the first one was. And it landed number 58 for the year between Dear John, which was one of those kind of weepy youth-oriented dramas, mm-hmm. and The Tooth Fairy, starring Dwayne Johnson. Oh, the Rama Bull himself. Yeah, Cats and Dogs 2 beat The Tooth Fairy. Cats and Dogs 2 fan, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yeah. And uh, top three for the year. Number one was Toy Story 3. Number two was Alice in Wonderland. And number three was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Family films across the uh, line there. Mm. And this movie had a Razzie nomination. It was nominated for Worst Eye-Gouging Misuse of 3D. Fair. I I will say this. You know what? To the credit of Cats and Dogs... Revenge of Kitty Galore. I didn't sit through the movie, watch it at home, going, oh, there's all these obnoxious 3D shots. I didn't even get the impression it was done in 3D, so that's probably the same thing you're experiencing. I wonder if it was more they just kind of post-converted it and it wasn't yeah. shot in 3D whatsoever. Because yeah. the uh, the winner of that Razzie was The Last Airbender, the M. Night Shyamalan adaptation, which was mm. terrible. And also nominated Clash of the Titans, Saw 3D, and the Nutcracker, the Untold Story. I don't know what that last one is, but I remember Clash of the Titans was a big kind of controversy. Is a strong word, but there was a lot of um, grumbling about that movie because it was post converted and it looked very dark and kind of tough to follow in theaters. Uh, the Titan film. Yeah, mm, I don't think I saw it. But... And there was even like floating faces. Okay, yeah, there's a string of those films that they just sort of did it afterwards because it was the trend of 3D at the time, and it just didn't. It, it didn't serve the film. No. No, mm. I can understand, okay. actually. It makes more sense to me to shoot cats and dogs in 3D. Like, that seems kind of, like, right aimed at that young audience. But uh, I guess it was, it must have been a post-conversion job. I think we would have seen the odd shot that stood out more so. I th- I think so, too. And I, I'm i glad that uh, this one isn't sort of anchored down by that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Well, okay. It's a weird one because we're sort of zooming through the backstory of these films, although it could be the case there isn't that much more to talk about. Not much. Yeah, not much to find, really. Right, okay, okay, okay. Now, there is a lot to talk about this week, but it is time to talk about Cats and Dogs 2. It is this film's meowment. Oof. (laughs) Don't know about that one. That's rough going. Uh, uh, I'm running out of puns. I'm running out of puns. Oh, these puns are pawful. Oh, okay. I can go with that one, I suppose. Yeah, I, I maybe I recovered there slightly. It's going to be an interesting one to break down. I'm going to jump in first with this one. I'll probably jump in first with the other one, too. I'll just lead us in. Yeah, yeah. Cats and Dogs 2 
Do you know what? Comparatively speaking, and as its own thing, it's fine. Do you know? It's abs- It's fine. It was. It was eighty minutes of like, ha, huh, that's a Bond reference. Ha, huh, that's a bit of a silly gimmick. Ha, huh, that's a bit of a fun sequence. Harmless is the word I underlined. Uh, harmless fun for kids. It's basically what I got it as. Yeah, there's some good animatics. The voice work is actually tremendous in this film. Tremendous. Specifically, <laughs> I bet Midler yeah. has left it all in the in the VO booth. She has gone for it. Uh, I, I appreciate that. It does have some things it lacks. The human touch, I think, is missing from this film. I think one thing the film did very well, the first film, I should say, is having, you know, Jeff Goldblum and the family sort of tied into the plot but uh, in a more sort of natural way than mm. perhaps in the third one, which we'll get to. And that felt like, you know, they were dogs that were existing in the real world, whereas these cats and dogs feel like the rules aren't the same in their world. Yeah. Yeah, like the rules felt like they'd really put some thought into it with the first movie. With this one, I'm like, mm-hmm. I, everything's out the window. Well, I, okay. This is a big question I have about these cats and dogs. We didn't bring it up in the first episode, and I want to hear from everyone else what they think as well. But Cam... What are the rules of cats and dogs? Are they talking in English or are they able to understand each other's barks and meows? Well, it's so tough because the movie is always skated around scenes of adults observing anything because the whole mm-hmm. thing is this all happens when adults aren't paying attention or humans aren't paying attention to yeah. what's going on. Uh-huh. So I, I I would assume they're just speaking in like barks and meows, I, I, I guess. Well, because there's evidence that supports that theory. For instance, yeah. in both of the films we're talking about, there are keyboards that they use that have paw prints and like for di- like cats and dogs types of paws. Yeah. So that would imply that they're talking in a language that hasn't is not alphabetical and therefore not, uh, yeah, our language. I, of course, I'm putting too much thought into this. Absolutely. And this is what puzzled me for the entirety of the second film. But I just, I'm curious because there's times where they break their own rules. Like, for instance, in the third one, which we'll get to, there's a kid who observes them talking and then goes to tell her mum. Yeah. Does she hear them talking? I, I, I don't know. I don't even know if they're thinking it through that much. I just think, like, these movies are a clothesline for gags and they've mm. kind of come up with this very loose mythology that they also know the average, I don't know, six to eight year old watching these movies at home uh, probably doesn't care. Cam, I care. I demand answers. I need <laughs> to know what the rules are of the cats and dogs universe. <laughs> well, that is entirely fair. Yeah, I, I think it is fair, but you know, I overall, I had a fine time with this. I watched it in a hotel room on a laptop. I think that was the prime way of watching this film on a 15-inch screen. It didn't need to be seen on the big screen. It kept my attention for most of the time and it had some nice moments to it. I'll I'll take that. I'll take that. But what did you think? I mean, I would say like Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore is not good. Um, It's the type of movie I would call a babysitter movie. It's something that adults put on and quickly depart the room. And leave it with the young kids to amuse them. And, no, you know, I, I'm sure had no shortage of these movies when I was growing up. Like some of the real lesser Disney live action films. Mm-hmm. I remember there was like a E.T. knockoff called Nookie or Nookie, something along those lines. Nookie. 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 Yeah. Uh, and of course, Mac and Me. Those are the types of movies like I would watch and I would, I'm sure, have moments that I would enjoy. But like, do they really hold up to scrutiny? No. 
And I found with Cats and Dogs 2, it did have moments I actually thought were kind of funny yeah. or visually inventive. It wasn't like completely without any merit whatsoever, which is something I actually went in expecting because mm-hmm. a lot of critics really like threw themselves on uh, on swords, like fighting over who could hate this movie more. And watching it, I was like, I don't know if it's that offensive, really. I've seen far worse movies. Um, it's just that, to me, I think its problems are it is so obsessed with, like, an overly convoluted plot. Like, you have this whole setup of, you know, um, Diggs, the main dog voiced by James Marsden, who's a cop dog. And they kind of set it up like it's almost like a Cobra lethal weapon-like situation where you have Chris O'Donnell as, like, the badass cop coming in. I would not cast Chris O'Donnell as a badass cop, but nonetheless, that's kind of what they're setting up here. But, like, the way they have Diggs learning about himself and joining this, you know, the the dog, whatever, it's dog world or whatever the hell it was called. Um, <laughs> and the kind of the tracking of the the beats to, you know, find Kitty Galore, I just thought got a little too convoluted and complex. Mm-hmm. Like, I could follow it, but if I were a kid, I'd be getting bored. Yeah. Because it's just like... They're not making it simple. They're like making it overly convoluted for no apparent reason, almost to like pad out a runtime or something. And this movie's 82 minutes. So they probably were padding out a runtime. And, you know, things like the Chris O'Donnell character, it was very clear to me that they were backgrounding the adult characters in this mm-hmm. one, as opposed to the first movie, which put a lot of emphasis on the family unit. Yep. And there was a certain point where I'm like, Chris O'Donnell, why are you even in this movie? Like, <laughs> it's so strange. It's like my second note is like poor Chris O'Donnell. Yeah. Like what what happened? Was Batman and Robin the end of him? Okay, here's my question to you. Who has it rougher in this movie? Good pun. Chris O'Donnell or Jet <laughs> or Jack McBrayer? I'd say Chris O'Donnell because Jack McBrayer is is playing to type. That's that's his character that he plays. Like that's he can do that in his sleep. Chris O'Donnell is having to feign like uh well, I mean, uh, he's having to feign a relationship with a dog. Although that relationship and how that relationship is physically manifested, I think, is a bit questionable because some of the line delivery that Chris O'Donnell has to this dog is a bit almost romantic at times. And I was like, <laughs> Chris, Chris, don't do it. No, no, no. Naughty Chris. Scott uh, is very icy with his dog. <laughs> yeah, I'm very like... That's it. We're going for a walk, and I just tell him stern taskmaster. Yeah, um, uh, th- it went. Be- it went beyond loving. I would say it felt like at times he was he was talking about his dog as if it was his wife, and yeah, there was. I I had some questions about how Chris was delivering his lines. I I got a question about that because the whole thing is like Chris O'Donnell is a police officer. Diggs sure. is his canine partner. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you like own the dog and it like lives with you. It does. Does it really? Oh, interesting. I actually thought that like the canine unit would be more with the, within the department, not like a dog you would have at your house. Oh, interesting. Well, the things you learn. Well, I, I can only speak to the UK, Cam, but in the UK, uh, dog handlers in the police, the dog stays with the family and they have a kennel in their house. And uh, yeah, they live as a family unit. Oh, okay. Well, uh, criticism crossed out for cats and dogs too. Yeah, that's why I found it even weirder because, like, it was how he was talking about the dog. I was like, ooh, ooh, this is a bit weird. But luckily, as you said, they sort of sideline Chris O'Donnell's character until right at the end of the film. His entire plotline's basically pointless. Oh, yeah. 
totally. It it's weird. Like I I know they felt that like they had to include some like lead actors, like human actors, but I don't think it was necessary in retrospect. No, like it felt like why cast a name actor? Mm. Uh, when you give them that little. Uh, yeah. I would have just kept it as bookends. Like, I don't need to cut to Chris O'Donnell over the course of the movie, staring forlornly out his window, thinking, like, where's Diggs? I will remember you. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That's not far off, yeah. And nice uh, Canadian connection for a movie shot in Canada. Why? Is that song Canadian? Sarah McLaughlin is Canadian, yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Uh, you didn't yeah. know the dog thing? I didn't know that about Sarah McLaughlin, or that was who sung it. So there you go. Let's talk about things we actually liked about the film. Sure. I said the VO work. I said Bette Midler. But I think most of the voiceover cast in this film do a great job of selling the lunacy of the film that we're surrounded by. Uh, I mean, I think James Marsden does a good job with it. Bette Midler, as I mentioned. Christina Applegate is pretty good. You do have Neil Patrick Harris uh, playing Lou from the first film. But yeah. that was originally played by Tobey Maguire, I think. That's right. And you also have... Nick Nolte playing Butch, taking over from Alec Baldwin, something I did not realize till the movie was over. I didn't realize that either. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> right. Yeesh. Yep. Uh, but you do get Sean Hayes returning as Mr. Tinkles. Yeah, which, you know, a fun little bit here or there. Um, yeah. Kind of obvious. That's my issue maybe with, like, the cats and dogs is that because they're playing to a That's very, your issue? very young audience... Well, I have a few issues, but like <laughs> to me, it's like there's the bit where they do like the Silence of the Lambs, yeah, riff with Mr. Tinkles, yeah, 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 and it's like that's clearly there to play to the adults because no mm -hmm. kid, most kids have not seen Silence of the Lambs, but it's not like clever enough to make an adult laugh. I was like, oh yeah, like that's a parody that's been done a billion times, and uh, you're just trotting it out again. You don't have anything new to add to it. And I get it. It's something that like adults can go, oh, I know what that means. But so what? <laughs> it's not like the movie's playing to the intelligence of an adult most of the time. Um, I just thought that was weird. I, it's funny. When I was watching um, press clippings, there was uh, footage from the red carpet. And um, there was a James Marsden interview. And he's saying, you know, like, I think this movie really works because it plays to adults and kids. It doesn't pander. It has, like, smart jokes that only the adults in the room are going to get. And then in the promo package, they cut immediately to a dog flying through the air going, I'm too old for this poop. <laughs> <laughs> just completely undercutting everything James Marsden just said. And yes, I get it. It's a lethal weapon reference. But that is the best they've got in terms of... Uh, a footage to back up James Marsden's point. Uh, I, 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 would you be willing to take the bet that James Marsden never saw the film? Uh, I think he probably did. He would. I think um he had younger kids. I think around this point, so he may have taken them to the premiere. Okay. See, that's that's like the boring answer that ruins the joke. I so, know, I know. I'm sorry. Uh, you've you brought it down, Cam. You, you, you're trying to make it. You, you want to make this a heady intellectual conversation about cats and dogs two and three. I can feel it. Well, believe me, I won't have a lot of intellectual thoughts on cats and dogs three. <laughs> I I don't think anyone does. But I I said about the VO work, and I'll credit that. The only other thing I I, I quite liked that I wanted to just call out is I think they did a pretty good job with the animation of the dogs in this one and the cats. Mm -hmm. I think pretty consistent with the first one. Not something you can tip your hat to in the third one. 
No, I agree 100%. I actually think in terms of the visual effects and everything, like it's not the sort of movie that would ever get <laughs> seemingly any uh, lauds from critics in no. terms of uh, having decent visual design, but I actually think it plays reasonably well. And some of the ambitious stuff, it's not the world's greatest CG I've ever seen, but it works. It, it works mm -hmm. on that kind of like comic booky you know, cartoony kind of level that I'm sure kids would enjoy. It's lively. It moves. When I'm watching Kitty Galore have her big, like, um, plot happen at the end and they're at Playland, which Playland is a, a theme park about 15 minutes away from me right now. So I am uh, quite familiar. Oh, that's a real place again. Like, so yeah. you've got another Vancouver connection to the Cats and Dogs universe. I do indeed. Yeah. Playland is kind of like, uh, our local amusement park. Um, I haven't been in a number of years, but used to go all the time in my 20s. Wow. And uh, yeah, like they even use like the Playland website. They didn't cover it up. They didn't try to rename the park or anything in the movie. So mm. I thought that was kind of fun. But when they have the the ride at the end and Kitty Galore's on top of it, and there's obviously like CG effects going on and everything. It looked fine. It looked decent. Yeah, which I, I think uh, this is a small budget kids film this is not meant to be it's not small budget 85 million dollar budget i see my gauge on how big and small budgets are must be way off thing because i had that down as quite small so this is a where does this fall is this like a mid-budget film probably no mid-budget's usually 50 million about that sort of thing so this is this is a quote-unquote big budget film it's not it's not like a hundred million dollar production but it's a decent budget okay Okay. Well, I, I, obviously well spent because I'm crediting them for having good special effects. So I'll take that. But anything you want to highlight is good, Cam. I thought there was the odd funny moment. I thought the scene with all the cats <laughs> on catnip was actually... Like, this was a movie that to me didn't play to adults most of the time. I was sitting there with like a straight face, just kind of staring blankly at the screen for most of it. But every now and again, it did work in something that I did think worked for adults. And I thought the scene of all the cats on catnip was actually pretty funny. That was, that was, they were like doped out of their heads. I quite like that. Sorry for the laughter before. It was just a line of like, I, I laughed a couple of times at this film that is meant to be funny. Just, that yeah. sort of deadpan delivery you had there was beautiful, Cam. <laughs> Thank you for that. I also enjoyed the Kitty Glore um, backstory. Yeah. Where, you know, she lost all her fur and you had the uh, Batman 89 homage with uh, her hand coming up out of the water. Oh, is that what that was? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the Joker okay. scene. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I'll take that. I mean, this film, it much as you say, like it is just doing that sort of what I guess what we would call the, the spy hard thing of just making pop culture references for the sake of it doesn't service the plot. But sometimes it is just sort of fun when, especially when you're us, you just sort of see it. So I guess it is kind of there for us. Yeah, I mean, it, it, if you see it, you're like, oh, okay, cool, moving on. Yeah. It's the kind of thing like if, you know, mom and dad... Uh, are walking into the room, either one, whatever, um, with snacks for the kids, and they see that they go, "Oh, hey, Batman!" and then they walk out of the room. <laughs> but like, I, I just from like a, a like a storytelling point of view, or from like a creative visual point of view, if you have to write a scene where something is transitioning or something is happening, and you can do what you want with it, I guess you, if if you're not creative enough to come up with your own cool sequence, I guess then steal from other people. Yeah, and it's really just borrowing from the first movie, which also had a number of homages as well. A lot of Spielberg yeah. stuff going on in that one. Exactly. Wasn't there like an E.T. moment in that first one? Yeah, it was when there was a flying cat in front of the moon, I think it was. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, okay. Yeah, you're right. 
But uh, there's probably going to be some dislikes too, and I have one with a bullet. Okay. I almost had an allergic reaction to the voice performance of Cat Williams. Okay. I don't really know who Cat Williams is, but okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, Seamus the Pigeon? Yeah, he's playing Seamus the Pigeon in the film. Cat Williams uh, is a uh, an American uh, comedian. He's, he's okay. best known for his comedy, stand-up comedy is what he does. But he does appear in TV shows. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that from the movie. <laughs> no, no, no. There's no there's no comedy there. I mean, he's just yeah. delivering his lines. But it's just it's obnoxiously written stuff. I'm yeah. not sure if it's in his performance or if it's in what's in the writing. But every time he was on screen, I was almost recoiling. It's never great when you have a motor mouth comedy relief character that mm. you never laugh at. And like, no, well, that's bang on. But also like he was... It felt like he was doing a lot of stand-up or like he was doing a lot of ad-libbing and it was just like jokes that came to him in, in the booth, which is fair enough. He is a comedian. He's doing what he's supposed to do. But I, I just felt like it, it just felt misplaced a lot of the time and it didn't make me laugh. I wonder if it did work for kids. I wonder if he was a big hit with the kids, but then again, he didn't appear in the third film. So That's true, although... It's so weird. I don't understand this franchise where you have like a nine-year gap between one and two, and one is a legit hit, and mm-hmm. then you have ten years between... I, I kind of understand the ten years between two and three because this one didn't do particularly wonderful at the box office, so that makes sense to me. You mean James Marston's approach of it appealing to all things didn't quite happen? <laughs> it would seem not. Oh. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I was just suddenly realized that the director talked about... Um, how he wanted this to feel like a comic book. Mm-hmm. And you've got James Marsden, who's in the X-Men movies, um, yep. you know, a few years before this. And um, the whole villain plot is from X2, where it was like Stryker had like the the tone that was going to like kill all the mutants. Mm. You remember? And then they switched it. So Magneto got hold of it and switched it. So it was going to kill all the humans. And with this, it's like the sound that's going to turn all dogs like crazy. Yeah, that's actually true. And you've mentioned Chris O'Donnell already, but he was Robin. Also true, yeah. Do you think they remembered that at the time? (laughs) Oh, no. No, no, no. I think Hollywood remembers that he was Robin, but that's about it. Yeah. Uh, Do you Mm -hmm. think they remembered that Nick Nolte was the father in the Hulk? Was he? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, in the Eric Bana film, yeah. I I certainly didn't. Yeah, he was absorbing dad. Oh, okay. Mm. Um, Dislike from you, Cam? Um, I mean, I talked about just the over plottiness. That's where you began to bore me. Mm-hmm. Like if this movie had just been more like visual invention and just kind of keep it coming, I wouldn't have been checking my watch. Let me put it that way. Whereas sure. with this, just like the dragged out plotting and the needs to constantly just kind of like kill time and just how lurching the uh, digs story was, it really did kind of wear on me. It felt honestly to me a lot of the time like, this almost shouldn't have been a movie. This should have been like a TV show. And obviously it's too expensive in this era, in the era of 2010 to make a TV show. But if you made like 20 minute cats and dogs episodes, I think it would actually work really well. Maybe that's something they should look at in the future because I think it would probably play reasonably well. And especially for like an adult like myself, the intended audience, I think, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know 85 minutes had me getting a little restless whereas like 22 minutes i'd be like oh that was painless well if you just did it like you know muppet babies style or something just animated it completely and just did that as a 
weekly cartoon show, this would do fine. Yeah. Um, I think like other than that, like the only thing that kind of just drove me nuts was that the um the cheap music covers that I just thought yep. were they just made the movie feel cheap. Mm-hmm. And it's not that cheap. And it felt that way every time those like knockoffs of like uh, was it bad to the bone or no born to be wild there was a mm-hmm. couple of them but like yep. every time it was like kind of eye rolling and another thing that i noticed that i just remembered was there was a number of i thought lip sync issues in this one that weren't as present in the first whereas i felt like the animation of the cats or dogs mouths in scenes didn't necessarily match the vocal performances as well as they did in the first one I don't know necessarily if that registered with me, but they did have more animals in this film, like a, a pigeon and stuff. So maybe that, maybe they spent, maybe they like their reach was just exceeded how much money they had. So they had to just sort of make do with lesser animation. It felt sometimes like flapping mouths versus verbalizing mouths, much like how we podcast. Exactly. Yes, and it, it, it kind of like that uh, pre-babe pig movie Gordy, which I've referenced before on the podcast that the world has forgotten. <laughs> Much like Nuki. Yeah, Nuki, Gordy, all the classics What's on What's with these like, funny names of like uh, these like <laughs> weird alien things that could talk? It was the trend at the time. That's, that's your go-to line, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, though, what did you think of Roger Moore's very low-energy performance? I was going to say, one of my final notes was sort of the Bond references in the film. There's quite a few... Uh, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, Roger Moore does appear as a cat named Tab Lazenby. Weird, right? Lazenby? Well, that's obviously another Bond nod. Why do you think they went with Lazenby? I guess it would be too heavy-handed to be like Tab Moore. What about Tab Brosnan? I don't know. if um, Lazenby does sound quite cool. Sure. Uh, more, and I don't think... Hmm. What about Tab Dalton? That's not bad. Tab Dalton sounds pretty good. And it, it had like a tactical turtleneck sweater on the cat, I imagine, or something like that. He'd look very, he'd look very cool and dark. And I think people would remember Dalton, Brosnan, or Connery over Lazenby. Yeah, why did they pick Lazenby? I thought it was such a strange choice, I gotta be honest. <laughs> What's your in-universe pitch for why it's called Tab Lazenby, folks? We want to hear from you. Or why do you think they, like, let us know. Drop us an email or on social media. Why do you think they went with Tab Lazenby? Because I can't figure it out. I, yeah, baffling. Absolutely baffling. Like, I, I, and also, in terms of, like, if you're going doing it for like a reference, you're trying to get, like, a pop from the crowd, like the adults watching, that's the least likely one you're going to get of the yeah. Bonds. If it was Tab Moore, Tab Brosnan, Tab... Well, even Craig by this point. Yeah. You'd get more of a, like a, uh-huh, yeah, 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 Tab Lazenby. That is a very select audience that's popping for that one. Yeah. And yeah. an audience that you shouldn't be marketing to with Cats and Dogs too, most likely. No, but that audience should be picking up on the fact that the song was sung by Shirley Bassey, Cam. That's true. I'm ashamed of myself. I was too distracted by, like, they couldn't even come up with an original song. How shameful sitting there writing notes, mad scribblings to myself in that moment. <laughs> There's me trying to write out the rules of the Cats and Dogs universe in the written language, and you're like trying to think of a better song. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I know. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Attention, spy hards, die hards. Independent podcasting. 
much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a hidden moon base, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, the Spy Hearts Patreon is the home to our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors, and The Debrief, where we activate our billion-dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Scott, it's Debrief time, and we are going globetrotting with the new James Bond reality show, 007 Road to a Million, Plus, we're going to look at the John le Carre documentary, The Pigeon Tunnel, and so much more. So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyheart. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the spy jinx. Um, any other sort of final notes, Cam? Yeah, I thought the, in terms of Bond references, I thought pause was actually pretty fun. Seeing the, uh, you know, the Mancoon with the, like, jaws like jaws mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> uh, i thought that was actually a fun gag a mancoon is the perfect cat to assign those traits to and i had a moment where i was watching this towards the end when uh you know pause is revealed as an entire robot cat mm -hmm. and like bites the cable or whatever yeah at the end and i'm sitting there going wait a second the character of jaws was inspired by the movie Jaws, which was a huge hit two years before The Spy Who Loved Me. Mm -hmm. This movie is taking that bit, and they have dispatched Robot Cat with the death of the shark in Jaws 2. Is it all coming full circle? Are you saying that the shark is circling? Mm, maybe I am. Maybe I am. Cats and Dogs 4. We can introduce sharks. Oh, oh bring it to the water. Yeah. Take it to the yeah. ocean. That's right. Cats and Dogs Marine Unit. Island of Dr. Meow Row. <laughs> oh, yeah. I like that. I like that. Um, oh, now I need to think of something. I'm going to be... Uh... I got another one. Das Bark. <laughs> These are beautiful. Where were you when they were writing Cats and Dogs 3? <laughs> no kidding. Apparently they hire anyone to write it. Uh... But I do have one tiny little note, and Cam, it's the first time we're doing it in about 40 minutes of this episode. Signal red alert. Mm. There is a Star Trek thing here. Okay. This is the nerdiest thing I may have ever said on this podcast. The font, yes, the font used in the credits is the Star Trek Voyager font. Oh, I did not pick up on that. You did Sharp not pick up on there. anything with the credits. I know. You? I was so distracted by the <laughs> cover song. I was outraged. Outraged. I was like hurling things across the room. Um, well, I had a question for you. Okay. Because I think like we're we're this movie was like pretty painless. I didn't think sure. it was very good. Mm -hmm. But like, there's lots of kids movies that aren't very good. Mm -hmm. Um. There's lots of adult movies that aren't very good. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this one had so much vitriol towards it back in 2010? I think a lot of it is it's just people think it's cool to hate on kids' films. Like, punching down. Is it because it's not Pixar, it's not Disney, and it's not, like, hitting those kind of artistic levels, and it's like... Well, it's not cool. This film isn't cool. Yeah. it's it's It must be deemed, I imagine, by critics as, like, just bottom of the barrel stuff lowbrow kids films with you know, f you know poop and fart jokes which it is sure 
but it does have its you know good things going for it and i don't the problem is and this is like a more of a meta discussion that we could get into for a second it's tough for us to review some of these kids films because they're not pitched at us no and i can kind of put my head in like a i'm a film reviewer i'm a critic and appraise it like from the filmmaking point of view what's the director doing what's the cinematographer doing what's the screenwriter doing what the actor's doing is this interesting but ultimately i'm not the audience yeah so if i don't like it no one cares i feel like i'm the audience for say like the first two spy kids movies sure where they're clearly trying to entertain everyone mm -hmm. when you get to the later spy kids movies less so yeah and i thought i feel like this falls into kind of that later spy kids era but i say i would say that this was you know better than a couple of those spy kids movies at least and you know i watched this like one day removed maybe it was the same day as like the exorcist believer the new exorcist movie mm -hmm. this was less painful to sit through than that uh well from the reviews of believer i've read i can buy that yeah I, I, don't, I don't know what sort of caused the vitriol towards it. I think it's just people thinking that it's cool to punch down. But do you have a theory? I think you're right. And I think it was wow. just at Whoa. that time. Whoa. Like, <laughs> just book, benchmark this. Put a, yeah, bookmark that. That's, uh, you can clip that, folks. Cam just said I was right. Go on. I also just think it's like, this is coming out in 2010. This is the year of Toy Story 3. Yeah. Harry Potter films. I think like the bar for really high quality kid-friendly entertainment is pretty high mm. and this is kind of going for saturday morning cartoon kind of stuff that's you know pretty disposable but i didn't find it painful which i really yeah. did i going into it i really thought this was going to be a chore to sit through i i was genuinely daunting watching both of these films yeah um but let's let's ask the question is cats and dogs 2 the revenge of kitty galore making the knock list i won't belabor it cam what do you have it's a no for me uh cats and dogs one is the superior film and that movie did not come particularly close to making the knock list in my eyes so uh this one's uh a couple slots below that one i con per oh music to my ears mm. shirley bassey opening music to my ears <laughs> 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 I'm coming up, so you better get this party started. Uh, what a waste of having Shirley Bassey on there, right? Like, why would you not write a song for her? And then, like, why would you not, like, make it kind of Bondian? And why not just take the lyrics to I'm coming up and make them, like, cats and dogs themed? I'm coming, pup. Not bad. Not bad. So you better get this party started. You uh, better get this purdy started. Oh. It's already better. Yeah. Yeah, and it's parody then. You haven't got to pay for the rights to the song. Although maybe if you're writing those lyrics, Shirley Bassey's like, get the hell out of my house. <laughs> you want me to do what? <laughs> exactly. I'm better than this. Thank you. I'm going back home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why does my Shirley Bassey sound like someone from like middle America? <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, I don't want to do that. No, <laughs> I'm Canadian now. <laughs> now you're. Uh, I thought you were doing Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? Or uh but yeah two no's and as such uh cats and dogs to the revenge of kitty galore is not making the knock list and the dossier on that file is complete uh, the dossier on that film is complete and filed as classified but let's pivot over to our second film of the week the second time we've done this it's our second film it is cats and dogs three pause 
unite. Hmm. Cam seems less than enthused about this one. <laughs> I can I can hear him uh, with a low growl of a dog that is uh, somewhat miffed what his owner is up to. Yeah. But if you haven't, oh my god, oh my god, Cam, oh my god. Is there an end on this one? There's a dot 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 more on the synopsis. Okay. For those who don't follow every week, I read the synopsis from letterbox.com and uh, it gives you about two paragraphs worth. And if you have more text, it has a dot, dot, dot more. I am a firm believer that you need less than two paragraphs to do a synopsis to a film. Mm, Right. Here we go. It's been 10 years since the creation of the Great Truce, an elaborate joint species surveillance system designed and monitored by cats and dogs to keep the peace when the conflicts arise. But when a tech-savvy villain hacks into wireless networks to use frequencies only heard by cats and dogs, he manipulates them into conflict, and the worldwide battle between cats and dogs is back on. That is incredibly... I'm not done. I'm not done. Strap in. Now. 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 A team of inexperienced and untested agents will use their dot 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 more old school animal instincts to restore order and peace between the cats and dogs everywhere that is an incredibly wordy synopsis for cats and dogs three crazy i mean you could just boil it down to that last paragraph a team of inexperienced and untested agents will use old school animal instincts to restore peace and, and order between cats and dogs everywhere yeah it's a little generic but yeah sure So's the movie. Waka waka. Yeah. Oh, waka waka. I love it. I love it. Not the film. Uh, this one's going to be a tough one because this, this is a weird film to talk about. But is there any backstory to bring up, Cam? There's not a lot of behind the scenes details on this one. Um, it was <laughs> directed by Sean McNamara, okay. who is a producer and writer and director. And he kicked off his career working in TV in 1989. And he worked on... Uh, hidden camera shows. There was Totally Hidden Video and Candid Camera. He worked okay. on both of those. Yeah. And then he began to work in kids TV. And then he um, started directing uh, some movies, mostly straight to video stuff like The Legend of Galgameth in 1996 and Casper, A Spirited Beginning. And a movie that, Scott, maybe you have some time for, Three Ninjas, High Noon at Mega Mountain. I'm, I uh, prefer My Ninjas and Twos. Thanks. Well, you're a wrestling guy, and I thought Hulk Hogan's uh, presence in that movie might have grabbed your attention. I Shocking as this may be to listeners, I haven't seen all of Hulk Hogan's filmography. Okay. But this is a guy that like directs a lot. Okay. A lot of movies. Like, just tons of straight-to-video stuff. And some movies that play theaters. Um, he directed Raise Your Voice, the Hilary Duff movie. He did The Cutting Edge, Going for the Gold, the straight-to-video sequel. He directed Bratz, the movie, Soul Surfer, which was the true story about the girl that got her arm bitten off by a shark. And he directed Baby Geniuses and the Mystery of the Crown Jewels, Baby Geniuses and the Treasures of Egypt, Baby Geniuses and the Space Baby, and Aliens Stole My Body, among many others. Wait, is Aliens Stole My Body, among many others, the full title of the film? <laughs> no, I'm just saying there's many <laughs> other titles. Like, I, this guy... I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> has a very 
wide filmography. Cats and Dogs 3 uh, is basically one of his most uh, recent films because it came out in 2020. But notably, he does have some prestige to his name because he's a producer, an occasional director and writer, or was, I should say, on the uh, kids' TV show Even Stevens, which I know a lot of young people were really into in the 2000s. He was a three-time Daytime Emmy nominee for that show. So... He has like been attached to some legit good stuff along the way. And interestingly, in 2022, he directed the Pierce Brosnan film, The King's Daughter, which I believe was actually shot in 2014, but was released in 2022. Wasn't that film like critically panned? Oh, yeah. It was like sitting in a vault for like eight years until they finally released it. Why did they keep a lid on it? I have no idea. I don't know if it was like a shifting studios or execs that didn't want to deal with it. I don't even know, but it got dumped eventually. I wonder if he actually directed the stuff originally or he was just he was brought onto like Shepherd in an edit that eventually came out. I think he directed it. Wow. Okay. Uh, the guy directs, as I said, like you go through that list. There's some things that were theatrical features. Soul Surfer was a theatrical movie. So was Raise Your Voice. But then he's also doing Baby Geniuses movies, which are very clear, straight to video, you know, basically leech off the popularity of whatever's left of popularity of the first two Baby Geniuses, which did play theaters. I've never heard of these Baby Geniuses films. Christopher Lloyd was in the first one. I don't know about the second. Are they like Look Who's Talking films, where like it's a baby talking? Uh, kind of, but they're like, they're kind of actually mix sort of the energy of like cats and dogs with like Look Who's Talking babies. Oh, so you can see their voice, uh, the mouth moving, basically. I don't know about that, but I mean in terms of like the like wacky cartoon stuff going on all around them. Oh, okay. Okay, uh, we're getting into the weeds about baby geniuses. Clearly, we don't want sure. to talk about Cats and Dogs 3, so let's get us back on track. Yeah, and it was written by Scott Binley, who uh, wrote a 1995 sex comedy called Miracle Beach that kind of kicked off his career. Mm. And he wrote Cop and a Half, New Recruit, the uh, straight-to-video sequel to the Burt Reynolds classic. And he wrote The Nut Job 2, Nutty by Nature. <laughs> and uh, Cats and Dogs 3 is his last credit to date. The Nut Job 2, Nutty by Nature is such a sequel title like it feels like a it feels like a 90s is that a 90s thing uh no it's recent i think oh boy okay yeah, yeah. like flubber to even flubbier right you know, like that that sort of just like there's no thought in this name whatsoever yeah i think that one might have been theatrical the nut job was i don't know about the sequel you would know i would uh and so the <laughs> budget for cats and dogs 3 was five million dollars so, think about that. $85 million for Cats and Dogs 2, $5 million for Cats and Dogs 3. Okay. It only was released theatrically, internationally, as I said at the top of the episode, and it earned $5.3 million. So, you know, it did fine, I guess. And it was number 182 at the worldwide box office for the year between the French comedy Divorce Club and the Mexican comedy Cindy La Regia, or Regia. I'm not exactly sure. Which is, uh, you know, Mexican for the Divorce Club. <laughs> Very coincidental. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, the top three for the year. This was the pandemic year, remember? So the pandemic uh, affected what was coming out at the box office. Well, you, you, funny you should mention that because I was looking at IMDb at trivia for this film. Uh, it might be something that's going to come around in a minute. But uh, partly what I read is the reason this was put out to theaters is because of the coronavirus. And it was more like, we just need material. 
That makes a lot of sense. And especially because international theaters were more open at a certain point than North American ones were. Yeah, because I was seeing films in the cinema before you were. I, I saw like Tenet and stuff. I don't think you even had a chance to do that. Oh, Tenet played here. But at that point in North America, like theaters weren't the smartest place to go. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, and so the top three for the year, number one was the 800. Number two was Demon Slayer. And those are both Chinese language productions or Chinese productions. Um, and number three was Bad Boys for Life. And the only other note I had on this was, um, you know, this was a movie also shot in Vancouver, like uh, the previous Cats and Dogs films. That said, I didn't recognize any of Vancouver, really. I'm guessing it was probably shot maybe out in the suburbs of Langley or something. And my friend Tony had a comment once where he said, if Vancouver is Hollywood North, Langley is Langley. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a specific Vancouver joke that I think everyone else in the rest of the world just sort of went, huh. Yeah, it's just like, um, you know, it's not the most glamorous of uh, Hollywood locations if you're going to shoot a movie here, you know what I mean? I see. But there are, like, establishing shots of Seattle in this film. It's meant to be set in Seattle, right? Exactly. So they're faking Seattle. I think, I'm pretty sure it's Langley. Okay. And um, so here in uh, BC, we have the Leo Awards, which are, like, film and TV awards. Mm. Um, This one, best score... And best production design in a youth or children's program or series for that run 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 song. <laughs> uh, score, not uh, not song, not original song. Okay, fine. Yeah, and it was nominated for cinematography, direction, and performance for Sarah Giles. You're kidding. It must have been a slim <laughs> year at the Leos. <laughs> was it? Was it like one of those things where like and nominate this is Sarah Giles? And Sarah Giles and Sarah Giles. And it's just like three pictures of her on the screen reacting to being nominated. And that's it. It's just like the one thing. I think it was just the pandemic had a real impact on the number of movies that could be nominated for the uh, Leos that year. Okay. Uh, I'm calling BS on this. Sure. Hmm. Uh, but hey, I understand them sort of scrapping together and making something work. Exactly, yes. And speaking of scrapping something together and trying to make it work, <laughs> let's talk about Cats and Dogs 3. <laughs> if that if that sums up your uh, behind the scenes. <laughs> Are you telling me there's not more behind the scenes on Cats and Dogs 3, Cam? No, there's not, no. You sure you don't want to do some more research on Cats and Dogs 3, Cam? I got nothing. I got nothing left. That that does uh, sum up a lot of about what's going to happen in the next 20 minutes or so. I'm going to leave this off. Yeah. I thought this film was a steaming <laughs> pile of shit zoo. Uh-huh. I mean, honestly, if you... I could design you a more creatively bankrupt film. There is nothing with any <laughs> passion or any gusto in here it is some of the worst acting i have ever seen and i've watched star trek fan films Mm. it is some of the worst special effects i've ever seen and i've watched star trek fan films it's terrible cam and i'm uh, i'm appalled that this had a theatrical release in the uk (laughs) not only that but uh the brits flocked to it (laughs) if if only that was a like a cat or a dog pun that would be great the villain is a bird. 
Oh, yes. Right? Yes, he is. Right? Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. No, I, I think you guys mostly stayed away. Uh, five million is a pretty modest number for an international release. This thing is terrible. Yeah. And the thing about Cats and Dogs 2 is, is it a good movie? No, not really. But you could tell that they were like trying in ways to pull off set pieces mm-hmm. on par with what they first did. There was a vision there. I was like, they, they were something. trying it, you know, in terms of their visual design and things like that. Yeah. When they talk about training the animals for so long and spending three units shooting for like 70 days of all this, you know, material, there was obviously an intention to try to create something. Whether it works or not is up to the viewer. This movie, no one tried. This was like, we have the license to the name, we have $5 million, and I don't know, you said the effects were bad. What effects? Like, this movie has almost no effects whatsoever. It just seemed like they were shooting cats and dogs on set together. They're making the mouths move, for sure. Mm-hmm. But even the eye lines of the animals don't work. Half the time, the dogs are turning and looking off camera. And this is what I meant. That like, The entire effects budget was basically just their mouths. That's basically it. And yeah. a few, like, bits of, I think, like, the dog throwing around iguana. Like that wasn't the real. That was my favorite part of the entire movie. That that fake looking iguana. That was glory. I don't think it's an iguana. I don't know what kind of lizard lizard it is, but uh, I loved watching that dog gore that very fake looking iguana. It, that I genuinely jumped at that point. I was like, "Oh my god, he's actually going to bite the thing!" <laughs> I was like, "What?" He went was, for it. He went for it. He was hungry. Yeah, but that wasn't even the best bit. The best bit was them having the cockatoo driving the van, and to do the effect of the cockatoo driving the van. They had a cockatoo puppet on a stick and they were waving it in front of the driving the, the steering wheel in the van whilst it was yeah. being driven. It looked so cheap. <laughs> you could see the stick. <laughs> Everything about the movie felt like one take. Oh, yeah. It was like, I need this cat and dog to have a scene together. And like the cat turns and wanders off screen and they're like, <laughs> ah, it's good. It's fine. We got it. We got it. Print it. <laughs> this is some Ed Wood stuff right here. The cat turns and just like facing its butt to the camera. They're like, well, that's okay. It starts pissing on the cameraman. They're like, yeah, uh, yeah, that's sure. That's in the scene. Okay. There's a part where they're walking in front of a TV and on the TV is like the fantastic, wonderful film noir gun crazy Mm. playing. And I'm like, guys, do not put a clip of gun crazy in this movie. (laughs) Come on. Were you offended for film noir fans? I was. I was offended for people that enjoy moving pictures at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't have any sort of like redeeming things to say about this film. Like I actually struggled to write likes down. Um. Yeah. I mean, when the movie is framed as fart versus poop, I'm like, boy, oh, this is this is what we're working with. This is uh the real like lowest common denominator stuff. And... It's just so half-assed. They mm-hmm. want to go back to the whole humans playing a more prominent role than this previous one. Why I mentioned it in the first part is exactly to make that. But it felt like they were just padding out the film yep. because everything the humans are doing has nothing to do whatsoever with the pets. Well, they never even like they set up whole plot with this. Okay, so just for for if you haven't watched Cats and Dogs two and listening to this review, you definitely haven't watched Cats and Dogs three. So here is a Fair. brief synopsis of like apart from what I read earlier, there are two families running concurrently in this film. One family is a boy who has a dog and he plays tennis and his mum is very overbearing. 
by the end of the film, he's good at tennis again. He has his mojo back. There is also a girl who lives with her dad and a cat. The cat is the cat of the title. And uh, they're about to get evicted because her dad is a bad parent. <laughs> More or less. More, that, that is it. He looked like Ridley Scott. I just kept thinking this like man Rid- looks like... He does. I think does. <laughs> like, why did they cast a Ridley Scott lookalike in this movie? <laughs> I think much like all the one takes are like, oh, you'll do. Like, ah, yeah, this guy. Sure. Uh, but like, they don't even resolve the poverty thing. Okay, can we stop for a second with the dad <laughs> thing? So we uh, we get the sense his the dad of the um, <laughs> Sarah Giles character was a musician. A- award-winning Sarah Giles character. Award-winning. Yeah, no, <laughs> award-dominated. I thought she was fine. As far as kids go, I was... Uh, I Whatever. But anyways, the dad was at one point a very popular musician. He had like yes. a platinum-selling album or something like that. Mm. Much like us with podcasting. Yeah. Did he ever write a second album? I got the impression he didn't. Well, I, I got the impression he was like sort of the struggling artist to get like his mojo back. So much like the tennis player, like he had lost it, but he never got it back. But like, it doesn't make sense. There was no second album or tour or anything. Like, did he not have a record company sign him if he's selling a million albums? You're, you're asking me to put, you know, to smooth over holes in their plot. I, I can't do that. The biggest laugh of the entire movie, other than the iguana goring, was when the dad says, like, I don't know if I have anything to say to the young audience anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you think? Yeah, it's a toy. <laughs> and my third biggest laugh was the dad is, like, playing kind of a guitar bit mm-hmm. through the movie. And the daughter, Sarah Giles' character... <laughs> Award-nominated. Award-nominated is... um. <laughs> Look, I'm not going to fault her at all. She has had a career beyond that. But when you are being directed in a movie like this, you can only work with so much. Um, but anyways, she's writing lyrics to this song secretly. And mm-hmm. there's a part where she's stuck in an elevator with this other kid played by, um, I don't know his name, <laughs> Callum Seagram Early. Um, not award nominated. Not, not, not award nominated. <laughs> but she starts playing the song. And it's her strumming going, run 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 and it cuts <laughs> i burst out laughing <laughs> wait it's it's the joke that when they come back it's like she's still singing no it's over she's no, like well like it's, but, there's, but there's like there's like a 20 minute sequence and then they come back she's still in the elevator and she's still playing the song like i couldn't stop laughing at that point did they write a song oh no even in like the in like in, even like the montage at the end of the film, it's like run, 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 cut away, yeah, cut out of there. We don't want to have royalties or create a song that we owe money for, and then and then and then like they get signed to a contract in the studio. They haven't actually released the song, and they're like, "Here's the contract with like dollar signs on it." It's like, okay, sure. And I was criticizing the lip syncing of mm. the animals in Cats and Dogs 2. The lip syncing of her musical performance was so amateur level that I was shocked that this was, that frankly, five million was even put into it. Well, I mean, it, there's so many things you can pick up, but even in that lift sequence, she starts playing the song for the boy, and immediately it goes from the sort of like echoey ambience of an elevator 
or lift to a studio production of her singing into a microphone <laughs> and like a, a guitar that's being clearly amplified and put through like chorus pedal effects and everything as well. It's like, that's not quite how this works. <laughs> it was astonishing stuff. It was like, great. It truly it was. was. It was great. I mean, this movie was torture to sit through. I, I have what I do have one more comment about the dad, actually, seeing as we're talking about the dad. Yeah. I very early on when they were just giving us like backstory for the characters, you see the girl and she's like out somewhere shopping or something and a car pulls up and to pick her up. And I'm like, oh, it's that classic like bad boy boyfriend character is going to turn up because he's got like a he's got a coupe with the hood down, despite the fact that he's in like Vancouver and he's wearing like leather. Oh, it's going to be sure. (laughs) Langley, not award winning. Um, And uh and I'm like, it's going to be her badass looking boyfriend. And it cuts and it's the dad. And I'm like, oh, maybe not quite the boyfriend then. No, no. He wishes he was that guy. It was astonishing stuff. And this movie, it was terrible. Like mm. legit terrible and really tough to sit through um, for that 90 minutes or whatever it was. Yeah. But it's such a strange movie because it's playing so, so unbelievably juvenile. Yeah, where you have like as I said, like fart versus poop, basically, um, with the furry animal rivalry termination and whatever poop stood for, I can't even remember. But like, it's it's just like the lowest level you can get to. But then there's like a weird scene at the top of the movie where the um the Max character, the the young boy in the film, mm-hmm. is like a tennis pro. Yeah. Um, and the mom is like obsessed with him. You know, is it like very like a uh, very aggressive tennis parent, I suppose. Yeah. And she's talking about how like through her cell phone, she can monitor his like activities. Mm-hmm. And she's talking like even when you're in the bathroom and your heart rate's going weird. And I'm like, who is this movie made for? Like, it's a worrying thing to put in because obviously we know what the implication is there. But who's meant to get that joke? And he is a teenager. We should say like it's a teenage yeah. boy. Yeah. What was your heart rate like in the shower, Cam? <laughs> when I was sobbing after this movie? <laughs> I think it stopped. <laughs> Clear. <laughs> Another Cats and Dogs 3 watcher. <laughs> Happens all the time. Here in Langley. Yeah. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Um, I don't want to like... I almost don't want to do likes and dislikes because I have no likes and my dislikes are the film. I will say my like. Oh, you have one. Okay, go on. When the cockatoo was putting on different outfits, I thought that was cute. Oh, we're going that low for likes, are we? We got that and we got the um, goring of the uh, lizard. That's all I got. That was literally going to say my only like then was just them ragdolling that lizard around. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, And uh, I, I appreciated how cheap the elevator set was because they clearly used like bedroom strip lighting around the lift to make it look more moody but yeah. you could just see the strip lights and the side of the frame the entire time it was yeah. pretty damn poor and wasn't this kind of just like ripping off the plot of the previous movie where it was going to have like a sound a broadcast thing yeah that would make cats and dogs fight yeah and it was really the same kind of thing as the the last film it was so weird yeah i that just without any of the sort of bells and whistles of like the bond jokes and stuff like that there was none of that in there what do you think the reason was they didn't work in you know lou for example or like the characters from the previous movies because character payments i guess so um 
You, you wouldn't have to pay someone for Lou. You wouldn't have to pay Guterman or anything for Lou. They do. Not Larry Guterman didn't create those characters, but I mean, the writing credits for this movie is based on characters created by with mm. the original writers of the first film. So it should be included. Well, they do mention Tickles and Tinkles and Pussy Galore. A kitty galore. They do mention them in the film. Yeah. So. Although I guess if this takes place 10 years after the previous movie, the chances of those animals still being around is um slim to none. Oh. Yeah, Uh-oh. it's a little, a little dark, but let's be <laughs> honest. You had nine years between Cats and Dogs 1 and 2, and then 10 years. Um, You know. Yes, yeah, where do there's this big blood feud when everyone's dead? Yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> uh, who's around long enough to care? I, well, I mean, I guess they are at peace at this point. It's it's this bird that's interfering. And mm-hmm. you've got George Lopez doing the voice of the bird. And you talked about the stellar voice cast of Cats and Dogs 2. Whether you like the movie or not, those are like some A-level people doing voices. Yeah, and we missed a bunch of names on that list. Like that, that second one is loaded. Wallace Shawn's there, Joe Pantoliano, uh, Michael Clark Duncan, Fred Armisen. There's a ton of people in that second film. The third one, I think George Lopez is the only voice actor of note, I think. The only one that jumps off the page, that's for sure. No, oh, no, 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 I should say. The two leads are known. No, yeah, yeah, I, I should correct. Yeah, the two leads are, to be fair. Yeah, Melissa Rauch as Gwen the Cat, who, Big Bang Theory, known for that. Yeah. And then also Max Greenfield, who was Roger the Dog in the film and was on the TV show, I think the New Girl? Yeah, uh, New Girl is what it's called. But yeah, yeah. Uh, he's he's big for New Girl, um, but he's done some films since. He was also uh, in Promising Young Woman recently as well. It is notable, though, that you had like movie stars in the previous two, whereas they are now shifting to TV stars. Yeah, it, it's definitely all TV actors here because it's uh, entirely a money-saving venture. This entire film was basically made to be made cheap and then either sold to a streamer or made on you know DVDs and Blu-rays for kids to watch endlessly at home with their families, uh, you know, to their parents to annoy them ad infinitum. So yeah, they they weren't gonna you know pay money for Toby Maguire or Neil Patrick Harris to come back and voice Lou. No, and there's no vision to it. There's no sense of like, you know, the differing visions of the first and second. We want to make like a Looney Tunes cartoon. We want to make a comic book. This one, there's nothing. Um, no. And I, I just was honestly like kind of stunned at how low effort it was. I expected it to be the cheaper straight to video version of the first two, but it didn't even really feel like the first two because it has like almost no visual effects. It feels like it feels like just like a cheap TV movie that they've slapped a name on. And even the title, I want to take issue with the title. The Revenge of Kitty Galore. Pretty decent title. It's got a Bond pun in there. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, that's kind of fun. Pause Unite? What? Well, this this feels like a, a Disney straight-to-video sequel in that sense, where it's like a lesser version of the first one. And they often reuse plots, yeah, uh, or they recycle them and like just you know, change the bells and whistles a little bit. But like you said, and like I said at the top, this has no sort of creative juices running through it at all. It is completely void of basically anything. I I would say like the cockatoo is kind of funny at times. Like it's a at least it's a big performance. You know, like it, it's going yeah. for something. The voice actor was like, "Hey, let's just play to the back of the room." 
but everything else is just so safe as well. Like the performances of both the two leads who we mentioned, uh, Melissa Rauch and Max Greenfield, that doesn't 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 feel like they're voicing cats and dogs. It just feels like they're just lending their voices to characters they have no idea about. They don't feel like they're attached to it. They did they did that work in a couple of weeks and they were out. They don't care about this film. I doubt they had weeks? done any. Well, I don't know about weeks. I think maybe a couple of days. Yeah, and, and like you said about the CG, there's I think I noted it down in my other notepad, but like the first 10 minutes of this film, there is no like lip syncing with any of the animals. No. It's just pictures of them walking around the house, which is just what a trained uh, acting animal in Hollywood would do anyway. They know how to hit their marks. They're trained to do that sort of stuff or to touch a button or to open the door, yada, yada, yada. But that's not remarkable. No. That's not what the Cats and Dogs films are known for. And there's me championing the Cats and Dogs films all of a sudden. Well, Cam, I think we're about ready to wrap it up. Do you have any final notes for us? Quite a few things. The fish don't count running gag I actually thought was kind of funny. Like, kind of funny? Yeah, it actually was quite effective because I think by the fourth time they said it in the film, I said it with the film. It's obvious, but... Like, I, I don't know why I was talking against the screen. I think I was just sort of uh, brainwashed by that point. It was like Ipocris on me. It just uh, <laughs> eventually won me over. Um, Another moment when the uh the young girl did like the fist bump thing with the cat and the cat was doing like an elaborate fist bump thing i was like that is very strange and it was very obviously a fake paw they were mm-hmm. just jabbing but it was so like fake looking it made me laugh did you catch the uh behind the scenes footage in the credits at the end um i definitely watched it but it's kind of glossing over my oh when they were like poking the other like the cat with it well, like you had the cats and the dogs, like the the fake arms and legs that they were using to do stuff, and you then like the green screen of like they had the cat driving the car or whatever it was, and like how they yeah. were holding the cat up. It was just kind of funny to see how the sausage was made a little bit there. Yeah, don't make sausages out of cats and dogs, folks. We don't recommend it. <laughs> uh, another note I had was that uh, at one point they used stock footage from the Matrix. I thought that was interesting. You've got my final note. You've just brought it up. Stock footage. It's in both <laughs> films, right? It, yeah. I said no in both films, but in this second, in this third film, I should say, it, it's atrocious. There are extended sequences that are over two minutes of just stock footage of animals playing or like a sunrise and a sunset over a random town just to fill time. And I just feel like, I know this is a cheap way of filling time in your film, but if you want your film to feel cheap, this is the way to do it. Yeah. And my last note was a lot of the movie is about will this, you know, teenage boy and girl, they keep saying become friends, but it seemed like there was something a little more than friendship going on at a certain point. But nonetheless, the movie ends with the two of them in a park with their pets Mm -hmm. and it's raining. (laughs) I was like, really? You couldn't wait till a day where it wasn't raining? I said the exact same thing to my wife who watched it along with me. I said... It's so she weird. watched it? Hannah watched this movie? She watched it. She was just on the sofa, I think. And she was like, why are you watching this film? I'm like, I don't know. I don't even know why I'm watching this film, to be honest It's my me. final Spy Hearts episode. I'm, I'm retiring as of now. I'm going out like uh, Kitty Galore. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I said, like, it's so bizarre that they chose to, show, to sort of showcase this town. I thought it was Seattle. I didn't know it was Vancouver or Langley, we should say. The not award-winning Langley. I'm only assuming Langley, but that tends to be, like, for example, when they shot... Kindergarten Cop 2 here, it was shot in Langley. Typically straight to video, sequel kind of stuff, they shoot Langley. Was that a Hulk Hogan film? No, it was Dolph Lundgren. Well, the first one was though, right? No, the first one was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Damn it. 
I was trying to get a Hulk Hogan reference based on your call out earlier, but I couldn't no, get one. Sorry, in. it's okay. It's okay. No, I I said it's so bizarre that like they could have chosen to shoot on any day to make this place look nice, but they chose the most overcast, wet day they could. And uh, but that's the entire film. It's like they've shot it in like April. Yeah, my guess is they had one day to shoot in that park, and that yeah. was the day. And that was the moment where it wasn't raining. It was raining. Oh boy, I watched it in 4K. I think. Oh boy, <laughs> I, I didn't go that far. Fair play to you. You really, uh, you really did sort of uh, go for the full sort of immersive experience. I did. I did. I experienced Cats and Dogs 3 in all of its glory. You wanted to be a part of Fart. Well, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> our assignment is complete. Uh, that's your show, not mine. Oh, yeah. good lord. I'll, I'll crib that line for a second. But yeah, our mission is to catalogue and rate and review all spy movies ever made. Uh, it's a big mission and sometimes a tiresome one. But we do it for the love of spy movies and for the love of you all. So without further ado... Knock this time. Cats and Dogs 1 and 2 did miss the mark, unfortunately, but this is its last chance oh, please. now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's not making a knock list, folks. Do we even need to do it, Cam? Run, run, run away from Cats and Dogs 3. Don't go any further. Don't go any further. <laughs> you, don't want to, you don't have to pay someone for it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's going to be two no's from us, unfortunately. This is a straight-to-video release. I mean, the same thing kind of happened with the Harry Palmer films. But, uh, yeah, looking at those, I think they had a a bit more of a creative spark going for them than, than Cats and Dogs 3 did. They are similarly, though, bargain basement productions. Like, they just, especially that second Harry Palmer TV movie, felt like it was made up of scraps that they basically shot for the second or for the, the first one. I think they said that that was the case, though. I think that was basically what they admitted. was it, Like, they filmed a few more things and then they just sort of, like, tidied it together. But it felt like it. Uh, kind of like that Pink Panther film that's basically just clips from the old films. And, like, this is really punching down, dealing with Cats and Dogs 3. But the fact is, it played theatrically, so we have to regard it as a theatrical film. Were it straight to video, we probably wouldn't have covered it. Absolutely. But um, before I wrap us up, Cam, I didn't enjoy this film at all. And I don't think you did either. And so no. I think I need to ask an additional question. Do we need to grab the slide whistle and disavow this sucker? No discussion necessary. He came prepared. I love it. Disavowed, and it's the first time in over a year that a film has been officially disavowed. Cats and Dogs 3, Pause Unites, you are going in the bargain basement bin. You are going... Actually, you're going in the poop bin. You're going where all the dog bag poop bags go in my house. You're going directly there. I wonder if I would have had more of an internal struggle about whether to put the second one in the disavowed list were I, it, I wouldn't have thought so i don't know like i might have were it not for watching the third one afterwards and that really did just have a barometer of how bad it went yeah like i was like it's not yeah. fair to put the second one in that when you've got that third one i think this, the second one actually had made me genuinely laugh a couple of times and had some good performances so i don't think i ever would have been uh intending to disavow it but i i think by about halfway through pause unite i was like this is this is dire Halfway. I think I was about 10 minutes in. No, I, I had to let it run, run, run a little bit longer before I decided to disavow it. Wow. Perfect. Yeah. What a mm. note to go out on. It is, isn't it? It really is beautiful. Well, there you go, folks. Cats and Dogs 2 and Cats and Dogs 3 did not make the knock list. And one was so bad, 
It even got disavowed. Thank you all for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion on Cats and Dogs 2 and 3. We've closed the saga, uh, you know, this franchise. It may come back. I guess the rights are still out there. We could be, you know, the Spy Kids 5 effect. We might get a director Netflix Cats and Dogs 4 at some point or a Cats and Dogs reboot. Maybe. You never know, I guess, because that first one was very profitable in theaters. But I don't think it'll be soon. And I guess we should just say, I think it's pretty obvious to the listeners, but our rankings for this series, it would go one, two, three. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't even question it too much. One felt like it had a, an actual story to tell. Yeah. And two and three did not. But on to bigger and brighter things. Cam, what have we got coming up next week? Scott, it's the 150th episode. And so we are going to celebrate in style with the 1994 Luc Besson hitman film, Leon the Professional, starring Jean Reno and Natalie Portman. We've looked at several hitman films previously, whether it was the Mechanic series or Day of the Jackal. So we're going to look at this one and determine whether it is worthy of being considered as something for entry into a spy canon. Well, firstly, 150 spy movie reviews, something to celebrate. And we knew you guys wanted a big one. So we know you wanted a big one. And we couldn't think of a better film to be celebrating than Leon the Professional from the steaming pile of dog doo-doo that was Cats and Dogs 2 and 3 to a uh, triumphant and interesting film, Luc Besson's Leon the Professional. Your mission, folks, should you choose to accept it, folks, is to join us next week as we celebrate 150 spy movies here at Spy Hards and take a deep dive into Leon the Professional. We've even got a Spy Master interview for you as well to enjoy. And if you like what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and joining the Spy Hards diehards do not forget to check out our patreon at patreon.com slash spyhards and do not forget to follow us discreetly as always on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next time we'll catch you kids on the flippity flop <laughs>